Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And welcome to another 2020 hindsight edition of The Bunker, where we look back at the year and into the future. I'm Roz Taylor. What does it mean to be a Conservative at the end of the first year of Boris Johnson's leadership? Has the party become purely a vehicle for Johnson, or does it still have some independence of spirit? And for those now outside Johnson's tent, what happens to you when the party you devoted your life to turns against you? With me today is a man who knows that feeling very well, David Gork former Work and Pension Secretary, Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor, and now Head of Public Policy at McFarlane's and very much a former member of the Conservative Party. Welcome to the bunker, David. Thank you, Ros. Pleasure to be here. It's been a turbulent 12 months, hasn't it? A year that was all supposed to be about getting Brexit done has turned out instead to be a year of fighting Covid. Yes, and obviously no one could have possibly predicted that. It has it meant that we've talked a lot less about Brexit than we otherwise would have done. I, I think to some extent, you know, when the government said we're going to get Brexit done and you know, there was the promise that this would all be behind us, that was never going to be right. But to some extent, the focus on COVID has meant there hasn't been quite the media attention, there hasn't been the public attention on Brexit that there might otherwise have been, which is probably one level being quite fortuitous uh, for the government, but they have been faced with the most enormous challenge in terms of COVID. Uh, it has tested the government. Not everything has gone right, to put it to put it mildly, but I think any government would have faced enormous difficulties in in the last twelve months. So, if you had to sum up the current Tory party at the end of twenty twenty in three words, what would they be? First of all, I think it's a discontented party. Uh, in terms of uncomfortable with COVID, uncomfortable with the lockdown measures that have been taken. So it's been quite rebellious. I think it is very much a Brexiteer party. So I think that would be my, my second word, if you like. It is very comfortable with a hard Brexit. It's discontented on on COVID, but content with a with a hard Brexit, and it's not one word, but I perhaps a phrase. I would say it's it's to some extent much more a party of protest than of of government. By which I mean its temperament is one which is you know pointing at things and going, isn't that ridiculous? And it's one that doesn't feel comfortable making tough decisions. It's one that is happiest railing against the establishment, the establishment being 
not itself, despite being the party in government, um, you know, it, 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 its instincts are almost more oppositionist than it is uh, one about the, the the nature of being a party of government, which is inherently about trade-offs and pragmatism and finding solutions to problems. It, it's almost taking on, if you like, the personality of a newspaper columnist than it is of a traditional party of government. Of course, you were thrown out of the Tory party for voting with the opposition last year over Brexit, along with quite a few other people like Roy Stewart and Dominic Grieve. What did you think of the pre-COVID agenda of levelling up? Um, was, was that backed by policies that would work, do you think? Did it have a chance of succeeding had COVID not come along and like a runaway train and derailed everything? I think the objective of levelling up by by which I mean trying to ensure that those parts of the country that have been perhaps less successful in recent decades that have felt somewhat left behind, um, but trying to to improve those parts of the economy is a is a is an admirable one, and um, you know, the the right um, objective for any government. Um, I think it was always going to be very difficult. I think there are really quite strong factors that make this process hard to do. Um, uh, And I don't think that if it can be done, it can be done over a short period of time. And there are risks in pursuing some policies, which I think won't be terribly effective. Um, So you can end up spending quite a lot of money on things that won't work. You can find yourself putting in distortions that will favour one area over another that will uh, be expensive and will just simply reallocate economic activity, won't actually increase economic activity. So there's all sorts of things that you can you you can you can try to do that might not be effective. But as an objective, I think it's a perfectly reasonable one. They've not been able to make much progress on that. I think it was always going to be harder than they made out at the time of the last general election. And one of the challenges for the Conservative Party when it goes into the next general election is that voters in those red wall seats will want to look and see what's happened. And having a convincing explanation as to how they have made progress is going to be very important for the Conservative Party. But this isn't their fault. You know, a year has been lost in that process when it was always, always going to take some time. Is there going to be much that they can do, bearing in mind the context of likely high unemployment next year and potentially a lot of social turmoil as well as we move out of the state support system that Sunak's put in place? How much, If they do have scope, some scope for levelling up, as it's called, can you imagine that taking any particular form? Well, I suspect what they'll end up doing is throwing lots of money at it. But but the things that are likely to be effective um, in the long term are things like improving transport infrastructure um, that will take some time. I, I also think it's unrealistic to expect you know, every town in the north of England or, or the Midlands to be um, you know, self-sufficiently successful economic places in their own right. Um, I think the model of the Northern Powerhouse that George Osborne pursued, which was about, you know, you focus on the big cities in the North, you try to link those up, 
And then the towns that surround those big cities get to benefit from the economic growth that flows from that. I think that is that is actually the right model. I think that is the model that can succeed. Uh, it is the model that, if you like, London operates. You know, the, the southeast of England is is prosperous, but it's based on um, you know a big labour market in in London and people going into London. If, and I think if you can try to replicate that with Manchester and Leeds and Sheffield, uh, and then those other areas sort of feed into that. Uh, then I think that's a model that can work. And I sometimes worry that the approach that is, if you like, being promised is that you know every small town will in itself have lots of jobs and lots of shops and lots of things going on there. Whereas in fact, I think a, a, a more likely model to succeed is that some of those towns become, frankly, commuter towns for big successful cities. Um, and, and and I don't think that's really what's been promised to a lot of the people in the North. I don't think that's what's expected from a lot of people in the North. But I, I do think that that is the, the way that you can make the North more prosperous. As you've pointed out already, the idea that we could get Brexit done in a neat, tidy and satisfactory way was always a myth. And but this year, I mean, we've seen it continue to divide the party, even with the massive distractions that we've had. We've seen the ERG driving it even further to the right um, in the face of uh, the possibility of no deal. Do you think there will ever be room in the party for pro-Europe views in the future? I think it's hard to see that there will. I'm a pessimist on this. Many of my good friends who are still in the party disagree about this. But I think the idea that the nature of our relationship with the European Union is going to disappear and be a a second order or third order question quite quickly, I think is highly unlikely. I think it's going to be, um, continue to be an important issue. And I think there is this pressure to move in the direction of sort of pure view of sovereignty, which I think is impractical. The trajectory of the party is to go further and further in that direction. And anyone advocating, say, a a closer relationship and say, okay, we've left the European Union, but can we rebuild that? Can we, you know, can we start to make our trade less full of friction as it's, which is about to become, I think is immediately going to be at a disadvantage. And, And look, I think there's a wider realignment going on in British politics that there are votes to be had for centre-right parties appealing to voters who've previously voted centre-left, but who are socially pretty conservative, pretty nationalist. And um, if you want to appeal to those voters, you've got to have clarity in your message. Uh, and, And that tends to move you away from what I would consider to be pragmatism in terms of our relationship with the EU. And and, and I see no reason why that process is going to come to an end or or be reversed. And and in that sense, I think the the Conservative Party will continue to be, if you like, a, a bit of a Brexit party. It will continue to have to justify why we have left the European Union and justify why we have left it on pretty hard terms. In that sense, anyone sort of saying, you know, I think that might have been a bit of a mistake and perhaps we should repair some of the damage, I'm not sure is going to have a strong voice in the party for for many years to come. This, of course, 
all was precipitated by David Cameron's decision in 2015 to hold an EU referendum. And he was spooked, of course, by the success of UKIP and the growing pressure from, from Eurosceptics on his on his own backbenches. Was there ever a better way to deal with Eurosceptics? Or, or was Cameron right to call their bluff and try to settle the issue as he hoped to do? I, I know he gets an enormous amount of criticism uh, for, for this. And, and um, most of the people who listen to this podcast, I suspect, remain deeply <laughs> unimpressed with uh, the, <laughs> the approach that David Cameron took. I, I'm not sure that he had that much alternative. I mean, you know, and, and, and look, at the time, I didn't oppose the referendum. Of course, you know, I wish we hadn't had it. Um, but the counterfactual is that I, I think pressure for a referendum would have continued to grow. Um, I, I think, uh, yes, the Conservative Party would have um, probably lost the 2015 general election. Cameron would have fallen and the party would have moved in a in an even more Brexity direction. Um, so I think at some point or other, this was going to come to a head. And you know, the Conservative Party is in office quite a lot of the time. Um, it would have been back in power, you know, not much later than twenty twenty, probably in twenty twenty. And in those circumstances would have pushed for for a referendum but with a government less inclined to stay in and and so Cameron took a gamble that obviously went disastrously wrong but his his objective was to deal with this once and for all kill this off as an issue and that would have secured our place in the European Union and, and the Conservative Party would have been less um, uh, less obsessed by the issue of, of sovereignty in the EU. I mean, obviously it fails, but it's, it, it is hard to see what, what alternative approach he could have taken that wouldn't have meant that you know, all this would have happened just a few years later. Like Dominic Grieve, you're a lawyer by background and you're working for McFarlane's now. Do you think it has been particularly hard for some lawyers to stomach the attacks on judges, the prorogation of parliament, the threat to break international law over Brexit that we've seen over the past year? Yes, I think it is. Um, I think it, it, it must be very difficult and must have tested many of my former colleagues' consciences um, quite quite significantly. I think in particular the internal market bill was you know, just, just an obvious breach of, of, of international law. Indeed, a minister you acknowledged it explicitly acknowledged that it was a breach of international law uh, i i think that is a departure from what previous governments of any color would have done and uh, I, I think there's a there's a point here which is you know, do you believe in our institutions i mean i think it's quite a tory point it's not ex- by no means an exclusive point but certainly a quite a conservative uh, concern to, to have, but also sort of more widely, you know, if you believe in a sort of liberal democracy that we we are, a, a belief in those institutions. So the same thing applies. I mean, I was furious at the uh, prorogation of Parliament. I thought it was an outrageous act. And that drove a lot of my behaviour in the autumn, because I just felt that, um, you know, the standard of behaviour from the government was um, well below what was acceptable. And the, you know, people should stand up against that. Allegra Stratton starts as the 
Prime Minister's new spokeswoman next month. This is obviously partly about optics. Do you think she will make a big difference to the government and the way it's perceived, as as Boris Johnson clearly hopes she will? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think she's very capable. I know Allegra pretty well from her days as a journalist. I think she's 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 very capable from what I from what I hear you know there is going to be a you know seen in the press there's going to be a, a change of tone and approach I, did, I think we also have to bear, bear in mind there is if you like a gravitational pull towards going after those new conservative voters those those red wall voters who are socially pretty conservative so if anyone thinks that the conservative party can you know quickly and successfully pursue uh, a form of politics which is more reminiscent of David Cameron circa 2006. I think they're going to be disappointed. I don't think that's that's something that the government can do. I just don't think the electoral logic takes them in 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 that direction. But I think you know Allegra is going to be in a very is going to have a really important role to play. She is going to be in the centre of things. If she's going to be able to do the job successfully, she's going to have to know and understand you know what the prime minister is 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 thinking, his approach. She's going to have to be in the room, and that makes her very influential automatically. So I think it's going to be a really interesting appointment. It'll be fascinating to see what influence she has on the the tone and substance of of government policy. What is this government's Achilles heel, finally? I mean, they've survived a lot. Does the government have a weakness which you anticipate could put it in real danger in the next few months, in the next year? I think its big problem is that it, it, it sort of promises the best of all worlds to, to, to everybody. And in the end, politics is about hard choices um, and so, you know, you're not going to be able to cut taxes and increase spending and keep borrowing down. You're not going to be able to deliver a Brexit that that has a sort of purist view on sovereignty, but also retains reasonable levels of market access. In the end, you have to make choices, and you you you, you disappoint some people when you make those choices. Uh, and, and so, that you know, f- f- the government forced into. Um, you know, trying to deliver its own rhetoric, trying to deliver incompatible promises, it's going to struggle on that. And that will raise questions both of competence and trust. Uh, and so um, if I was if I was advising the Labour Party, which I'm not doing, um, you know, trying to try to try to uh, and it's very unlikely that I would. Um, it, it's um, you know, seizing on the opportunities that come from the fact that you know, promises will be broken, um, promises won't be delivered and, and you know, demonstrating that that is both a combination of a breach of trust and a failure of competence. To governors to choose. David, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. A pleasure. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is the last Bunker Daily. We'll be back in January, but the final panel show is out tomorrow. Wherever you're spending your holidays and whoever you can spend them with, have a good time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.